0: Let me begin tonight by telling you a little story. Um, maybe you know the name uh, Charles Dickens, one of my favorite authors, um, a literary giant. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, maybe you've heard of him too. He's another literary titan. Um, but they met on occasion, maybe maybe formally, uh, but I don't know that, uh, in 1846 and in London. And they were taking a walk around the city of London t- talking about the issues of of their uh, of their careers, and you know they were both professing Christians. You may know Dostoevsky and Dickens. In fact, Dickens's book, uh, if you've not read A Tale of Two Cities, um, "Sell Your Shoes," uh, one of the one of the best, uh, my, my favorite novel of all time, um, and the 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 closing scenes of A Tale of Two Cities is the gospel as as wonderfully presented as you'll ever hear it. But anyway, and and geniusly. But anyway, uh, Dostoevsky and Dickens were walking uh, through the streets of London together, and and Dickens was was quite a large personality, a a real uh, overbearing kind of guy, and um, he he was saying to Dostoevsky, he was talking about this battle that he felt uh, was inside of him, and uh, he was groaning about uh, that. You know, I know what's right, I know what's good to do, but I, I I find myself not doing that and doing the very opposite at times, and he. And, and he, he, he kind of burst out and said, I feel like on occasions that there's two people living inside of me. And Dostoevsky replied, only two? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's why we're here, is because there are two people living inside us, an old man and a new man. And they're waging. There's a conflict within, in all of us, uh, that's the that's the combined testimony of old and new testaments, and so what we're trying to do is to refresh ourselves over God's word and be reminded of things that are that are that are important as we wage a battle with our own with our own internal self. That's why we're here. Now, um, as for Galatians chapter two, if you can find that real quick, um, I, I have to disappoint you again. We're not going to make it real far. I just want to. I want to um, remind you of what I the, the, two things that I said last week, and, and which will help us get into tonight. Um, I, I pointed out that uh, last year in in Galatians chapter one, Paul makes the statement in in, in chapter one verse six. Um, about, I, I marvel that you were removed so quickly to another gospel, a different gospel. And, and so the whole essence of this book of Galatians is that he's trying to overturn the idea that there is a competing, that there is another, that there is a different, that there is a second gospel. And so it, it led me to make some comments about uh, relativism and what it's done to truth and et cetera, et cetera. So we talked about that for a minute. And then we kind of uh, uh, opened up Galatians chapter two, and I told you last week that this whole section—well, this whole book, really—but this section, um, Paul is um, is trying to uh, silence his critics by make, paying a visit to Jerusalem and meeting with the uh, with the big names in the Christian movement to to make sure that his audiences know that the gospel that they have is the same gospel that he has. That's what this is going to be about when we ultimately get to it. But the great, the great charge, the great um, uh, criticism of Paul is that he, um, he eliminated the law. That Paul's gospel eliminated the law. Now, gang, uh, you don't need to turn here, but to me, this is the, the most succinct statement of Paul's gospel to be found anywhere. It's in Romans 3. It's verse 28, and he simply says this. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That was Paul's gospel. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone apart from the deeds of the law. And it was that apart from the deeds of the law thing that got him in such trouble. Um, His critics kept saying, well, I mean, if you listen to Paul, then then the law that has been so sacred and so holy to us for, for millennia... Is devalued. It's eliminated. Its role is, is debunked. We don't need it anymore. On and on and on. And 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 not only that. If you um, if you really um, uh, preach that gospel like Paul preaches it, you are going to undermine uh, any effort to do to see people living holy lives. You're going to produce indolence. Spiritual indolence among, among God's people. If you, if you hold to that gospel. Because ultimately, he discards the law and that's going to create this, uh, this, this Christian mindset that we can just get away with anything. Because, you know, we're, we're people under grace, not law. Well, that was the objection. And so, um, what I raised last week is simply this. Okay. If that's the complaint against the gospel, um, the, the, the thing that we have to answer is this. What, what role does the law play? Does it have any role to play at all? Is there any role for the law? That's what we talked about last week. We introduced it a little bit. And, um, yeah. and, uh, and I said to you then that there were three roles that the law played. And this is the one that we looked at last week. The pedagogical... No, pedagogical... Um, that's what we talked about last week. There is a pedagogical role that the, that the law plays. That is, that it, it, that it tutors us. It leads us. It takes us by the hand. It shows us our sin and then, and then escorts us uh, to, to the remedy that's found in the gospel. That's what we mean by the pedagogical role of the law. So the law comes in before the gospel and alerts us to our sin and our need. And then we find that need so so gloriously met in the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. But the thing that makes us receptive to the gospel is this pedagogical use of the law. Okay? Now, that, that's one role that the law plays. A second, law, a second one that's mentioned is a civil usage of the law, and that is uh, that um, God's law restrains evil through the, um, um, through the warnings of punishment, just civilly, just uh, societally. And you know, um, you may not, may, may not groove on that, for, but you know, um, we see in the 21st century, and, and even earlier than this, but when the, when the law of God is devalued and replaced and diminished in its role and its importance, what you've seen is a rise of crime, you've seen um uh, confusion over the terms of um, the definition of justice you've seen um a a a, a spike in in all kinds of uh, legal actions of all sorts because there is now no role for the law civilly um to define what is what is wrong, what is wicked and to punish it but of course um In the Old and New Testament, there was a civil role of the law to play. All right. So those are two roles that the law plays. It's this third one, ladies and gentlemen, that is so complex. And it's simply called the normative use. The normative use of the law. And when I say normative, I mean normative for Christians. There's a normative role that the law plays. In the life of a Christian. <laughs> now, gang, I have really given this a great deal of thought as to how deep to take you over this. I really have. I, you know, um, <laughs> I, this, uh, for instance, I'm not going to do this, but I'm just going to try to impress you. Um, the, the question becomes, uh, is sanctification monergistic or synergistic? Now, that's really interesting to you, isn't it? But, ladies and gentlemen, we could go there. In fact, if I said to you last week, if you keep up with the Gospel Coalition and the stuff that's on the Gospel Coalition, that was the big, the big conflict that happened all in the spring, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, is sanctification something that is monergistic or synergistic? But, but, but we're not. We're going to skip that that part. Uh, what I'm trying to do is very simply explain the role that the normative law, role that the law plays in the life of a Christian. Okay? Um, because it does indeed still have a vital role to play in the life of the. You know, guys, um, let me say that it's only in circles that emphasize grace. Like this one, where this debate comes up, gang. If um, I mean, most of you are used to uh, uh, settings where you are motivated to live godly lives through um, through fear and guilt. But once you get out of that, that that oppression. And you step into a community, that, a community that emphasizes grace, like this one. Then, ladies and gentlemen, um, then this, this whole confusion arises about, okay, if I am saved by grace, what, uh, what does the law have to do with me at all? And it has a very significant Role to play, and I hope I can make it clear to you this morning. We can set this thing aside and and move on to other things. All right, guys. I want you to turn to um, Exodus chapter twenty. To me, this was the this was the simplest way to do this, and I I hope it will be simple for you. Exodus chapter twenty. Now, gang, um, I have said to you, and I've said it just recently. One of the things that we talk about a lot around here is that indicatives precede imperatives. I mentioned it from the pulpit about three weeks ago. The same thing. Indicatives precede imperatives. And, you know, those are, those are some words we don't use very often, and so that's very kind of confusing. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you want to understand what that means, it's right here in Exodus chapter 20. And at the same time, it's going to tell you the role that the law plays. At least I hope so. Gang, um, uh, Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, Okay, are you ready? <laughs> I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an indicative. It's telling you who you are. I am the Lord your God and I'm the one that brought you out of that house of bondage over there in Egypt. That is who you are. I am the Lord your God. You and I are in a relationship one with the other and I'm your God and you're my people and I just delivered you from bondage. Okay, there's the indicative. Coming right on the heels of the indicative, thou shalt have no other gods before me. <laughs> An indicative is to always precede the imperative. But once the indicative is, um, is true, that is, once God is my God and once I am his child, you'll notice... That the first thing on the mind of God, after he had stated their relationship that was already in existence, first thing we're concerned about is law in your life. You know, guys, um, (laughs) the nation of Israel in the 21st century still doesn't get that point. Because, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think you already know this, but the nation of Israel takes these Ten Commandments and says, if you adhere to those Ten Commandments, you are going to be made right with God. That That is to say, put the imperative first, and that will lead to and indicative. That's not what the text does. That's not what the New Testament does. The New Testament tells us first who we are, and then it says, because you are who you are, here's something that needs to be important to you. Law. Obedience. Duty. You know, gang, um, it is... is, um, It's remarkable to me that the word duty and the word obedience, uh, that those things have become ugly words in spheres where grace is so valued. Gang, um, here is grace in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. That is, God says, I came down to Egypt, I bore you out on eagles' wings... And now i 'm your God, you 're my people that 's grace, ladies and gentlemen. it doesn 't say, as a result of that faithful service to me down there in Egypt, I have decided that you can be my people on the basis of your grand performance. No, ladies and gentlemen there. They're, they're in bondage, they're in Egypt, and God reaches in, grabs them out of their, their bondage, establishes them as his people, and then he says, now, we got that settled. You're my people. Now, there's something that's really important. And what's important is, is that you obey me. Now, gang, listen to me. <laughs> This is an old, I've said this before, but this is an old Gerstner statement and I, I just, I can still hear him saying it. John Gerstner. Obedience is required but it is never meritorious. <laughs> in, is, in, in Judaism, obedience merits. Obedience is meritorious. I am saying to you that obedience is required, but there's nothing meritorious about it. Okay, if there's not any merit in it, Jimmy, then why is it required? Let me give you two reasons, and that'll be all we'll do tonight. Um, that is, I'm saying now, why? Why is the law required if there's no merit associated with it? Okay, are you with me? Number one, it's required as a proof of the reality of your justification. It is the evidence that you do belong to this God that obedience is important to you. Guys... Um, I am saved by a faith in Christ alone, but that faith in Christ is never alone. It always results in a life that's ongoingly and progressively being conformed and made more and more like the Savior. Obedience is required because it's an evidence of the reality of your justification. Um... I, I, I hate to confuse you with this. I am not saying perfect obedience. But I am saying that, I'll, that generally speaking, that the life of the believer is one that is headed towards more and more conformity to Christ. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a proof of the reality of my justification that I claim. It's required. It's not meritorious, but it's required as an evidence as, or as proof of my justification. Okay? I think you know that. Here's one that you may not know. And this is where I, um, I hope I can communicate this well. But. Guys... Um, uh, uh, Jesus makes the statement, and I think you know about this, in, in uh, John 14, he says, um, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay. Um, I am saying that obedience is required because it is in that life of obedience where enjoyment of God is realized. Um, gang, um, <clears throat> The, the Puritans used to talk about something that they called the complacent love of God. Now, that's a word um, that really means self-satisfied, but, but they, they used it differently. Their whole idea was that there was a satisfaction um, in simply uh, an, an intimacy that you enjoyed between you and God. You know the story about Eric Little. Eric Little um, was the missionary to China that was an Olympic runner, and you know you saw the movie. If you didn't see the movie, you probably need to rent it. It's just great. But Eric Little was an Olympic runner, and and um, and his sister wanted him to go to uh, China with her, and and uh, he got to kind of um, um, sidetracked, at least in her opinion. He got sidetracked into this Olympic uh, uh, training. He was a, he was a distance runner, I think, uh, and, and so. Um, uh, there's a scene in the movie where um, his sister takes him out on the countryside and she's trying to talk him out of this, uh, this career in, in uh, track. And Eric Little, who ended up, by the way, as a missionary in China and dying of cancer, but Eric Little says to his sister, as she's pleading with him to, to get out of this track world, Eric Little says to her, but Jenny, when I run... I feel the pleasure of God. The the point behind that, ladies and gentlemen, is when I do the thing for which I have been designed, when I am doing that for which God has designed me, I sense his pleasure. That's what the Puritans meant by the complacent love of God. Guys, The only way that you begin to sense that pleasure is when you are living a life that is according to your design. And that design is revealed and reflected in the law. For instance, you know what you're designed for? Monogamy. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Ladies and gentlemen, that law is placed in there not to limit your fun. It is to maximize your whole sense of enjoyment of this life. And when I obey it, I'm living according to design and I sense his pleasure. Gang, I bet you, everyone in this room can remember instances where you have—I um, don't know—neglected your soul, or or gotten yourself into a mess, or made some pretty bad choices, and and uh, and you know things weren't uh, things were really complicated, and you were found yourself in a mess. Tell me, how much sweetness did you taste then? How much enjoyment did you have? Gang, I want you to see this. This is, and and we're almost done, but see if you can find the book of Jude. It's the book right before Revelation. The book of Jude. Just quickly, verse, uh, well, I'm going to read verse 20, but it's in verse 21. This is the book of Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Here it is. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look at that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Is he suggesting that we can fall out of the love of God? Is he saying that once I was in God's love and now I'm out of God's love? No, ladies and gentlemen. What Jude is describing is what I'm describing. A, a, an experiential enjoyment of who God is and what he is in my life. How do I keep myself in the love of God? I'll tell you how. Obedience. <laughs> um, obedience is not meritorious but obedience is required because it's evidence of my justification but it is also that thing that gives me that sense that i have the pleasure of god in my life gang you have tasted that i know you have and when you tasted it that's when your spiritual life is the is the is the is the, is the best but how is it that that is that is accomplished It's accomplished by by determining that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will obey. It's not uh, meritorious, my obedience, but oh, how advantageous it is. Let me show you one more, and, and I'll wrap this up for the night. Um... It's in Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you want to flip over there, or I can just read it to you, if you'll trust me to read it right. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And by the way, you know that Deuteronomy is a word that simply means the second law. It's the repetition of the law. These are a series of sermons on the part of Moses, where he's going over and over the law again. But he states in verse 12, and now Israel What does the Lord your God require of you? Look, ladies and gentlemen, who's he addressing this to? Oh, Israel. And by the way, who's Israel? Oh, those are my people. There's that indicative again. Um, I'm addressing this to my people, and I'm saying this to my people. This is what the Lord God requires of you. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command you today. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I, I I I've read all of this. Not for any. My purpose is not for you to see any of that. Here's what I want you to see. The next three words, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command you today. For, your. Good. (laughs) Guys, obedience is for my good. How does how does how does life work? How do I know how I can express my love for this God who has brought me into relationship? Well, He's given me the law. And the law tells me things about him. It tells me things about what are important to him. It tells me things that, were, that, that, that make life work better. And so he gives me this law and he turns to me and says, Okay, Jimmy Young, we're already settled in our relationship, buddy. I've already borne you out on eagle's wings, big boy. But now, now that that relationship and, it's, and your status is, is, is defined... Here's something really important. You must obey me. You must, um, you must strive at putting to death that old man that's in you, and and replacing it with that new man. Ephesians four. And now, guys we all understand that no progress is ever going to be made unless the Holy Spirit grants might. But I am still, ladies and gentlemen, called upon to make choices that say I want God's, I want to obey this God and He has the right to command me. Um, Guys, this whole idea about my cooperation with God, the Holy Spirit. Boy, is that discussed in volumes. But let me try to illustrate it this way and say one thing, we're done. There was a woman one time that, um, she, I don't know that she was a friend of ours, but she told us this story about herself, I, I, I recall. But she wanted to quit smoking. Um, you know, I, I was never a smoker, um, I, I, I thought I was this hotshot athlete. Hmm. SEC baseball proved me otherwise. Um, but, but anyway, um, so I didn't smoke. So I didn't know much about smoking. But this lady wanted to quit smoking. And so she, um, she, 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 her story was that she said to God, this is what she said. She said, God, I want to quit smoking. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stick a cigarette on my lip right here. And if you want me to quit smoking, I want you to knock that cigarette off my lip. Now, do you know that paper on those cigarettes, how they kind of stick to your lip, you know? (laughs) Guys, to me, that's a great illustration of if I'm ever going to quit smoking, I'm going to have to take that cigarette right off of my lip. That's a role that I play, ladies and gentlemen. I choose. Enabled and empowered by the Holy Ghost, yes. But I choose to say that obedience is urgent in my life. It's a proof of my my justification. And it is the way, ladies and gentlemen that I enjoy this thing called my Christian life. I begin to experience something of the complacent love of God for me. I enjoy Him. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, if you find that your Christian experience is devoid of enjoyment... I think the first place you need to look is where is it that I am um, rebelling against that which God has told me that he would have me to obey and my obedience my obedience not meritorious it earns me nothing but it's for my I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, if you believed those three words, for your good, we wouldn't have any more confusion. We wouldn't have any more debate about the necessity, the requirement of obedience. Hopefully, that'll clear some things up for you and we can move on. Our Father, um, we do indeed want to see you glorified by all that we choose to do in our lives. Might might our choices reflect that we love you, that we are are eager to follow you where you lead, knowing that obedience is not going to subtract joy, it's going to add it. That that living life according to the design of the designer is to enhance our pleasure that living life according to your word according to your law is the way that we the way that we find such delight in this thing that we call our christian heritage now father Um, clear up whatever uh, confusion exists in the mind of your people and set us on a course together of pursuing hotly after a life of obedience, knowing that we're already safe in your love, but what we're after now is that, that sense of your pleasure. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.